Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the LSE. I am uh, Alex Gillespie, uh, Associate Professor, Deputy Head of Department from Social Psychology. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to uh, another public lecture series in our 50-year celebration of the department where we have a series of public lectures on psychology as a social science. And for 50 years, our department has carried a vision of psychology uh, where the individual has to be embedded in social and cultural contexts, and that is what we're trying to promote through this lecture series. And today's lecture, I think, will exemplify this vision. Uh, our speaker is Professor Richard Schwader from the University of Chicago, and his talk is entitled The Moral Challenge of Robust <coughs> Cultural Pluralism. Uh, Professor Richard Schwader is a cultural anthropologist and earlier described himself as a cultural psychologist. I think he uses those two titles uh, to play both sides of anthropology and psychology. Um, he is the Harold H. Swift Distinguished Service Professor of Human Development in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. And he's published key texts on cultural psychology, moral reasoning, and cultural pluralism. For this research, he's received too many awards and honors for me to uh, go through here, and I was advised not to go through the long list, but I mentioned a couple. Uh, Guggenheim Fellow, Fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Palo Alto, Carnegie Scholar, was President of the Society of Psychological Anthropology, and he's a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a very distinguished uh, academic. The plan for the evening is that uh, Professor Schwader will talk for 50 minutes or an hour, an hour maybe, and then we'll have some commentary, first from Dr. Bradley Franks and then Anne Phillips, and then we will open the discussion to the floor. We do have to be out of here by 8 p.m., so we will stick to that time frame. We will make a podcast of the talk, or we're going to try, so we'll hope that that will be up uh, within a few days. Please ensure that your mobile phones are silenced and you can tweet about the talk if you want using uh, the hashtag which is up on the slide. So, without further ado, I'll hand it over to Thank Professor you. Schrader. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to hear, be here. I just want to figure out how to move the PowerPoint. If, if there, is there someone here who's can show me. Oh, I see. Just, I'm sorry, just... I just hit it each time? Yep. Okay, very good. Thank you. So that's good. Okay. Can you hear, is this projecting from this distance? Can you hear me, everyone? Yeah. Good. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm a cultural anthropologist who works on the cultural psychology of morality. I specialize in the discovery of the moral foundations of diverse cultural traditions, both liberal and illiberal. There's more than a little irony in this type of calling. Many of the diverse cultural traditions studied by cultural anthropologists are quite illiberal. 
These are communities where the so-called natives feel viscerally attached to a particular historical ethical community grounded in its own identity, defining metaphysical beliefs and legends or origin stories of one sort or another. These are communities where the so-called natives draw strong in-group versus out-group distinctions, do not believe that there but for fortune goes you or goes I, do believe that God's goddesses and the spirits of the dead play a continuing part in human history, feel duty-bound to live up to the briefs for behavior distinctive of their social status in the community, which is often embedded in hierarchical relationships, and frequently discriminate in favor or against other individuals on the basis of sex, age, ethnicity, and religion, while many of the cultural anthropologists who study those illiberal traditions are themselves quite liberal and tend to equate the moral domain with values such as individual autonomy, non-discrimination, justice, equality, and freedom of choice. The cultural anthropologist whose own moral thinking is steeped in a liberal ethics of autonomy seeks to understand and fairly represent the moral thinking of the native whose moral thinking is rooted in an ethics of community and an ethics of divinity. It's quite a challenge. Many cultural anthropologists find themselves struggling with that irony throughout their careers while trying to find ways to be robust cultural pluralists and ethical liberals at the same time. Figuring out how to be a liberal and a pluralist is not such an easy thing to do, but at least it is no longer a struggle peculiar to the career of a cultural anthropologist. Indeed, the reconciliation of robust cultural pluralism and liberalism is rapidly becoming a major moral and public policy challenge, both domestically, especially in various multi-ethnic, multicultural countries, and on a global scale. As the late great anthropologist Clifford Gertz presciently remarked some years ago, while writing with a sense of urgency in our migratory post-Cold War conflict-written world, and here I quote him, positioning Muslims in France, whites in South Africa, Arabs in Israel, or Koreans in Japan are not altogether the same sort of thing. But if political theory is going to be of any relevance at all in the splintered world, it will have to have something cogent to say about how in the face of a drive towards a destructive integrity, such structures can be brought into being, how they can be sustained, and how they can be made to work. He also observed that the world is, quote, growing both more global and more divided, more thoroughly interconnected and more intricately partitioned at the same time. As the one increases, so does the other. Gertz anticipated that this volatile period in human history during which the forces of integration, for example, of local economies, and the forces of separation, for example, empowering ethno-national identities and movements of various sorts, challenging the integrity of multinational states walk hand in hand, was not likely to be short-lived. And if that's true, we would be well advised to think very hard about what a highly developed social intelligence amounts to in the contemporary world. Time is short, but in this lecture I'm going to put my toes in the water with regard to that issue, too. Time may be short in the questions I just posed. What should a highly developed social intelligence look like in a multicultural world, and is it possible 
to be a robust cultural pluralist and a dedicated liberal at the same time are surely deep and serious ones. But let me start this lecture in a slightly more lighthearted mode with a little rhyme I remember from my childhood before I became an anthropologist specializing in the cultural morality, in the cultural psychology of moral thinking. It goes like this. I wish I could sing it for you. George Washington liked good roast beef. Haim Solomon liked fish. When Uncle Sam served liberty, they both enjoyed the dish. When I was a child growing up in New York City in the early days of television, that jingle was part of a public service advertisement linking American patriotism to tolerance for the social understandings and customary practices of ethnic and religious minority groups in the United States. Uncle Sam personifies the American government in that jingle, George Washington, the iconic father of the United States, likes to eat red meat and is selected to represent the perspective of the dominant white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethnic group. Haim Solomon, who was a personal friend of George Washington and a banker who helped finance the American Revolution, has different customary food habits, and that's Haim Solomon on the right. Not accidentally, he was also a Jew, and he appears as a symbol of the liberty of cultural minority groups to carry forward their way of life in the United States. Recently, I discovered that the verse itself comes from a book called Little Songs on Big Subjects, which is full of morally loaded pluralistic and humanistic ditties about social understanding, the gist of which is summarized by these lines, quote, Nature has no favorite nation, color, creed, or occupation. Any place on the globe you point your finger to, there's someone with the same type blood as you. Okay. I've occasionally wondered if that rhyme about George Washington and Haim Solomon is one of the early influences on my decision to become a cultural anthropologist. I've also wondered how far one can press the principle of liberty and of moral subjectivism implied by its message, which encourages a sense of tolerance for variety in the customary practices of different ethnic groups by reducing cultural difference to the idea of taste or preference to each group its own bag. George Washington, the wasp, liked good roast beef. Heim Solomon, the Jew, liked fish. When Uncle Sam served liberty, they both enjoyed the dish. What if I were to interrogate the social intelligence of my Hindu Brahmin informants in the temple town of Bhubaneswar in Orissa, India, where I've conducted research on and off for several decades by asking them about that verse? They live in a coastal area of India where the local Brahmins customarily eat fish, and as a result of that behavior are viewed as somewhat lower in status by Brahmins from other regions of India, who characteristically maintain a strict vegetarian diet. And in rural Hindu India, including the state of Orissa, beef eating is pretty much restricted to very low-status castes, one of whose specializations and duties historically and even now, is to undertake the spiritually polluting task of getting rid of dead so-called holy cows. I realize, of course, that some of you may also be inclined to make status and identity judgments about George Washington for not being a vegetarian or even a meat-eater. In the secular liberal cosmopolitan regions of the world, health 
has become a pervasive public policy concept and is put to use to rank, stigmatize, and make harm-based moral judgments about the behavioral habits of others. But let's go a step further. What if George Washington and Haim Solomon had different conceptions of marriage or gender relations or bodily integrity or how to discipline children? What if George Washington liked monogamy and Haim Solomon liked polygamy? If you read the Old Testament, you'll discover that Abraham and Sarah, the married patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish people, were half brother and sister. Their father had two wives. What if the wife of George Washington liked to wear short dresses at social occasions, while Haim Solomon's wife had a personal coat of modesty and preferred to shield herself from the male gaze by wearing a burqa in the public square? What if George Washington viewed neonatal male circumcision as child abuse? He himself was surely not circumcised, while Haim Solomon, who most likely was circumcised, viewed it as an act of religious piety, a deeply significant sign of ethnic identity, and a way to, move, to remove a moral defect from the male body, which is one of the ways the famous 12th century Rabbi Maimonides engaged in moral thinking about the Jewish custom. If the United States is a multicultural society and if your social intelligence is highly developed, what should be on your un-American cultural activities list, if anything at all, and why? That same question can be asked of any multicultural society. What is un-Chinese? What is un-French? What is un-Israeli? What is un-English? What is un-human? I suspect that kind of question of social understanding in the multicultural world is going to be on center stage throughout the next decades to come. The encounter between the liberal anthropologist and the illiberal native is not hard to illustrate. Consider the following four courses of action. Then rank them in terms of your personal judgment of seriousness of moral breach or ethical failure in each instance. Um, these four examples of potential moral breaches come from com a comparative study that I did with the Indian anthropologist Man Manamohan Marapatra and the developmental psychologist Joan Miller many years ago in that Hindu temple community in Orissa, India, I alluded to earlier, and in a liberal secular university community in the United States, namely Hyde Park, the residential community surrounding the University of Chicago. So I was in two temple towns one a Hindu temple town and one the University of Chicago, which we can think of as the temple of reason. If I'm correct, most liberal cultural anthropologists, and I suspect most of you will respond this way to the four incidents with the most serious moral breach listed first. If I'm correct, most of you will not consider the last two courses of action to be moral failures at all. One, and most serious. A poor man went to the hospital after being seriously hurt in an accident. At the hospital, they refused to treat him because he could not afford to pay. You're likely to judge this a very serious moral failure. Two, in a family, the firstborn son slept with his mother or grandmother until he was 10 years old. During these 10 years, he never slept in a separate bed. You're likely to judge this a moral breach, but a less serious one, although moral attitudes towards cross-generational and even cross-gender co-sleeping may be variable or changing in your own cultural group. I know the family bed has become popular in some sub subgroups 
So we even have an artifact to facilitate co-sleeping. Three, the day after his father's death, the eldest son had a haircut and ate chicken. You'll not judge this a moral breach. Four, a widow in your community eats fish two or three times a week. You'll not judge this a moral breach. The following is the way most residents, women and men, of the Hindu temple town would rank these courses of action, with the most serious moral breach listed first, and only the last action on the list considered no breach at all. First, the day after his father's death, the eldest son had a haircut and ate chicken. This would be judged a very serious moral breach, indeed one of the most serious moral failures imaginable. I'm not going to tell you why, at least not in my lecture. If you're interested, perhaps the question can be raised during our discussion time. Two, a widow in your community eats fish two or three times a week. This would be judged a very serious moral breach, and I will have more to say why in a moment. Three, a poor man went to the hospital after being seriously hurt in an accident at the hospital. They refused to treat him because he could not afford to pay. This would be judged a serious moral breach, but not quite as serious as the other two. In a family, the firstborn son slept with his mother or grandmother until he was 10 years old. During these 10 years, he never slept in a separate bed. This would not be judged a moral breach and might view, be viewed as desirable. And this is how men and women in the Hindu temple community might talk about that widow in your community who eats fish two or three times a week if interviewed and probed about their thinking by a liberal cultural anthropologist interested in the moral foundations of their way of life. Question. Is the widow's behavior wrong? Answer. Yes, widows should not eat fish, meat, onions, or garlic, or any hot foods. They must restrict their diet to cool foods, rice, dal, ghee, vegetables. If I had time, I would have to go into, I would go into an exegesis of the distinction between hot and cool foods, a not uncommon distinction on a global scale, and something that would have to be filled in and documented ethnographically. Um, question, how serious is the violation? Answer, it's a very serious violation. She will suffer greatly if she eats fish. Is it a sin? Yes, it's a great sin, a mahapop. Question, what if no one knew this had been done? It was done in secret or privately. Would it be wrong then? Answer, what difference does it make if it's done while alone? It's wrong. A widow's time should be spent seeking salvation, seeking to be reunited with the soul of her husband. Hot foods will distract her. They'll stimulate her sexual appetite. She will lose her sanctity and behave like a prostitute. Question. Would it be best if everyone in the world followed the rule that widows should not eat fish? Answer. That would be best. A widow's devotion is to her deceased husband, who should be treated like a god. She will offend his spirit if she eats fish. Question. In the United States, widows eat fish all the time. Would the United States be a better place if widows stopped eating fish? Answer, definitely it would be a better place. Perhaps American widows would stop having sex and marrying other men. Question, what if most people in India wanted to change the rule so that it would be all right for widows to eat fish? Would it be okay to change the rule? Answer, no, it's wrong for a widow to eat fish. Hindu dharma, truth, forbids it. Question, do you think a widow who eats fish should be stopped or punished in some way? 
Answer. She should be stopped, but the sin will live with her, and she will suffer for it. Now imagine how that interview would go if the cultural anthropologist and the illiberal Hindu inform in traded places or switch roles with the aim of uncovering the moral thinking of the liberal anthropologist about the widow's behavior. What would the anthropologist say? Based on the research that Mana Mohan Mahapatra and Joan Miller and I did to, together, one might reasonably predict that the interview would be a pay-on to the notion that everyone should be free to eat fish if they want to. Okay. And foremost in the interview would be the invocation of a moral concept that never appeared in hundreds of interviews with the Hindu temple town informants, namely the idea of an inalienable, unalterable, natural right to eat fish if you want to. There would be lots of talk about wants and preferences and the right to have the things you want. Remember that interview probe concerning the alterability of the rule. What if we asked the secular liberal anthropologist this question? What if most people in the United States wanted to change the rule so that widows would be forbidden from eating fish? Would it be okay to change the rule? Here, a little playfully, is the way I imagine she or he might respond. No, you can't do that. It's not okay to impose an oppressive, sexist, patriarchal rule forbidding widows from eating fish. Secular liberal dharma, truth, forbids it. All people in the world have a right to eat fish if they want to. I hope your own visceral reactions and snap judgments about the moral thinking of the Hindu informant don't keep you from seeing the irony in this type of encounter between the liberal cultural anthropologist and the illiberal native. Cultural anthropologists are honor-bound as professional anthropologists to develop relationships of trust and friendship with the people they study, to accurately and fairly represent their so-called native point of view, and even to defend, if such a defense is possible within the bounds of moral reason, the liberty of diverse peoples of the world to carry forward their way of life, even if that way of life is illiberal. But there is also some creative tension inherent in the encounter. Being honor-bound to represent the so-called native point of view ends up being instructive because it forces the anthropological investigator to give a full specification of the metaphysical framework and the set of worthy ends that lend positive moral meaning to actions that seem either non-moral or even immoral to the anthropological observer. And it forces the anthropological investigator to face up to the limits of liberalism as a way of judging the moral foundations of diverse cultural traditions and fairly appraising the moral thinking of others. That has been one of the basic themes of my work in the cultural psychology of morality. In order to fairly represent the moral foundations of social customs, I've suggested it's helpful to have a more expansive theoretical notion of the moral domain itself. Ultimately, one comes to recognize that you can't live by ecumenism alone, and there's far more to the moral domain than liberal values and secular metaphysical beliefs alone can provide. In other words, the illiberality of an action or practice is not necessarily a measure of its immorality. And there's something called the Big Three conception of morality, which several of us has tried to develop, which argues that the moral domain consists of three subdomains, an ethics of autonomy, 
which liberalism picks up on, an ethics of community and an ethics of divinity, which I won't go into in any detail. The basic theme I wish to address in this lecture um, I call the equality difference paradox. Some picture of a multi-ethnic, multicultural society where the members of different cultural groups can be both different and equal is a moral ideal for many liberal academics in the United States, and I suspect here as well. There is a national conversation going on right now in the United States, and widely in Europe too, about the implications of rising income inequalities in the United States and about the obvious fact, often labeled the achievement gap, that annual household incomes are not equally distributed across cultural groups. American Indians, Mexican-Americans, and African-Americans, for example, tend to be less well-off with regard to yearly income than Asian-Americans or Anglo-Americans. I'm not going to enter into that... I am going to enter into that conversation by focusing on what I'm going to call the equality difference paradox. The equality difference paradox suggests that embracing lifestyle diversity and promoting equality, at least of the economic sort, are not harmonious goals. I'd like to suggest that this paradox has largely been kept out of the conversation in debates about rising income inequalities in the United States. And I'll discuss some of the implications of, that pain, of the painful recognition that some of our core values, like equality and tolerance for diversity, may be irreconcilable and that the liberal pluralism favored by many academics may be a utopian dream. But first, let me try to draw some lessons from a case study. I recently discovered that the poorest community in the United States is Jewish. Jews are known to be the richest ethnic group in the country, so it drew my attention. It's a community where 60% of the residents qualify for food stamps and live below the poverty line as defined by the official standards used in debates about income inequality in the United States. There are Talmudic lessons being learned by the devout in that poorest of all American communities. And the residents think their way of life is divine or ordained. After a very brief visit to the community, I even engaged in my own Talmudic exercise, spending day and night trying to answer some doubt-ridden take-home questions about what's real and what's unreal in our current inequality debates. Questions such as these. If the poorest community is Jewish, Could there be something wrong with the way we currently measure and portray the realities of income inequality in America? And by extension, what is the most sensible way to think about the shape of America's income distributions in a complex multicultural society where promoting economic equality and embracing lifestyle diversity may not be harmonious goals, and where many individuals and groups are not terribly eager to turn themselves into upwardly mobile, high-paid, marketable assets in a global economy or to have an equal opportunity to sacrifice their distinctive way of life at the altar of mammon? Could it be that income inequality comes with the territory and might even be a vital measure of the freedom of peoples in a multicultural society to live by different lights? What if income equality could be achieved by flattening out cultural variety 
bleaching the country of its lifestyle differences and cleansing it of its group diversity. That's happened in some countries, including Europe, at various points in their history, and even now. As you can see, even a brief visit to the poorest community in the land can be an assumption questioning and potentially frame-shattering experience for anyone caught up in the national conversation. I refer to it as a national conversation because conversations about economic inequality do seem to be almost everywhere these days in the United States. And I gather there's a session somewhere else around here tonight on that very topic. Public policy forums are ablaze in partisan disputes about whether to raise the minimum wage and left-wing, right-wing culture war quarrels about whether it's shameful to be in the top 1% or whether there should even be a top 1%. In academic circles, there's much discussion about the obscenely rich leaving behind everyone else in the upper half of the yearly income distribution, largely provoked by statistical analyses showing a gradual increase in the high-end concentration of monetary earnings beginning in the 1960s and accelerating over the past 25 years. And you're probably all familiar with slides like that or like that. Among liberal egalitarians, there is a progressive sense of national crisis as a dystopian picture of the country has gone viral, depicting a caste-like society increasingly divided between those who have and those who have not, or alternatively between those who own the country and those who don't. Many other voices have entered the conversation. Last spring, the PBS NewsHour, an evening news analysis program for those interested in public policy, started conducting weekly interviews with a member of the American Congress about their legislative proposals for closing the gap between the rich and the poor. Inside the Washington Beltway, the vision of middle-class consumers disappearing from malls in the land of the free and the home of the brave to be replaced by intolerant and undeserving oligarchs having fun at the expense of an impoverished underclass has gained political currency. Several prominent private foundations, the W.T. Grant Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, have recently redirected their research funding priorities so as to better understand the distribution of economic resources in the United States and to trace the consequences of income inequality for the overall well-being of American children, families, and communities. What is real and what is unreal or unrealistic in this national conversation? A closer look at the way of life of the residents of the poorest community in the United States is unexpectedly eye-opening. We're not talking about a Lakota Sioux Indian reservation in North Dakota or Mexican-American border settlements in Presidio County, Texas, which are locations very near the bottom of our country's monetary earnings hierarchy. We're talking about Kiris Joel, an ultra-Orthodox, Yiddish-speaking, Hasidic village of 21,357 souls who carry forward their distinctive Jewish lifestyle in a one-square-mile incorporated region of the state of New York, who spend much of their time studying biblical texts if you are a man, or raising a family if you are a woman, who don't really care if their sexual division of labor in the family does not maximize household income, 
and who, whether you are a man or a woman, expend a great deal of effort maintaining a holy community and sanctified family life according to their understandings of divine law, including instructions for food preparation, ritual purity, and modesty. Um, quick digression, I ran a seminar last quarter at the University of Chicago with about 20 students, and at some point, we were looking at legal cases about marriage, polygamy cases, gay marriage issues. At some point, I asked the students, well, in your view, what's the aim of marriage? I mean, what's its purpose? How would you define what it means to be married? I had expected that a companionship version of marriage had emerged as a popular way of thinking about it, but much to my surprise, no one in, first of all, no one in the class said family building or to have children. No one. Um, no one even said sex and love. The main response was to pool wealth. <laughs> essentially was essentially a kind of corporate instrumental arrangement so that you basically had more money between the two of you to maintain your lifestyle. That was the, probably the most popular way of describing marriage to at least the generation who were in that class. Um, that the lifestyle in Kira's Joel does not place a high value on going to college in the service of mainstream upper-middle-class conceptions of career success. Very few of the adults in the community, almost all of whom are native-born Americans, have, very few have or have ever wanted a college degree. It's also a very youthful village where over 60% of the residents are under 18 years of age. This is understandable given the fertility rate in the community and the average number of persons living in a household, which is 5.7, which are among the highest in the country. The median household income in Kiris Joel is record-breaking, too. On the low side, $23,336 based on 2012 census record. That's household income. The average per capita monetary income amounts to only $6,948 per year. Yet, the population of the village is expanding. Hasidic Jews keep moving into this suburban enclave, admiring its communal purity, and the average value of owner-occupied housing units in the community is $365,000 which is above the median for the state of New York. In 2011, the UCLA historian of Jewish life, David Myers, and the U.S. University of Southern California legal scholar, Nomi Stolzenberg, a married couple, wrote about the origins of this residential community in the 1970s and the legal status of the now-incorporated village. Kiris Joel, meaning the village of Joel, was named after Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, a Holocaust survivor and charismatic anti-Zionist leader who aimed to create a site of insular purity for Satmar Hasidim outside of New York City. If you visit Kiris Joel, as I did a little over a year ago, you'll encounter a distinctive village, although one no more exotic to the sensibilities of most New Yorkers than an Amish community, where language, dress, gender relations, dietary restrictions, family life customs, and religious practices are reminiscent of Jewish life as one might imagine it in a 19th century Hungarian shtetl. Myers and Stolzenberg invite us to recognize that the creation of this Hasidic enclave 
is consistent with, quote, a longstanding American tradition of potent, a potent strain of communitarianism, which permits difference and segregation, not least religious difference and segregation. There are, of course, many longstanding American traditions, including potent strains of liberal individualism, but not, that is not what this particular community is about. This is what it looks like. This is what it's about. That's the sign you see when you drive into Kiris Joel, basically not put up by the town, but put up by the local synagogue, um, and basically asking you to respect the traditions of the community, which include wearing long skirts or pants, covering necklines, sleeves past the elbow, use appropriate language, maintain gender separation in all public areas. Thank you for respecting our values. Please enjoy your visit. Okay. Um, and here are some scenes, just quick pictures, what it looks like when you drive in. Lots of people who are doing Torah study. UPS arrives. <laughs> um, the kids um, who actually look different. There's a whole story to be told about the children and schooling here. Women on the street with baby carriages, lots and lots of baby carriages. This is Joel Teitelbaum, the founder. And that's what that's curious, Joel. Do the distressingly low income and per capita incomes of the residents of Kiris Joel actually index a way of life that is poor, wretched, desperate, or, defo or devoid of self-affirming purpose? Clearly not, and that is a problem for anyone who thinks the official numbers that get analyzed and debated in discussions about rising inequality in the United States are true reflections of the actual standard of living or overall psychological well-being or resources available for maintaining well-being of a person or a people, whether in Sioux County, North Dakota, Presidio County, Texas, or Orange County, New York, or Monroe County, New York, where this is located. Around the time Myers and Stolzenberg described the potent communitarian origins of the village, Sam Roberts, a correspondent for the New York Times, began wondering what the poverty numbers really meant in Kira's Joel. Figuring that out and interpreting the numbers is a Talmudic exercise in and of itself, for it matters what you count and how you count it. And that counting process is far less straightforward and more inviting of interpretation than you might think. The so-called hardest of the social sciences, namely economics, is a good deal softer than you might suppose, or at least that's one of the things I discovered going into this material. Roberts noticed several factors contributing to the overall welfare of this close-knit Jewish village, which extended far beyond the official measures. Income-based statistical distributions may seem literal and up-close and personal to macroeconomists calculating and recalculating cutoffs for the top 1% and the poverty line, on a computer screen, but the numbers are not really real in and of themselves. Okay? They're more like constructions or even fictions of a sort. They're quite distanced from lived realities. They are so narrowly focused, they overlook many relevant features of the local scene that an ethnographer or someone interested in social capital or cultural capital might discover. Kiris Joel turns out to be an existence proof 
of the hazards of using such data to draw strong inferences about the general welfare or well-being of a real community. The connection between the so-called hard numbers and the live realities is often quite obscure. In fact, one even might consider some of the economic portrayals a form of obscurantism. For example, unattended to and thus unaccounted for in standard income-based poverty numbers are the monetary earnings flowing into the Kiris Joel, into the Kiris Joel communally owned nonprofit butchery that sells lots of kosher chickens. Not counted is the income flowing into a successful matzah bakery owned by the local synagogue. Not counted are the public transfers, for example, food stamps, medical, medical uh, support, tax credits, which are available to many of the residents of Kiris Joel precisely because on the basis of pre-tax earned income data, they are officially classified as living below the poverty line. Not counted are the welfare benefits that flow from publicly financed institutions into the village, such as a maternal care facility, and at various times over the years, the secular public school for disabled local children. Such factors are indicators of a community's well-being and of the individual benefits that accrue from this type of communitarian living, but they're not part of the calculation of yearly per capita and household income that are at the heart of the national conversation about increasing inequalities in America. There are other types of welfare-enhancing benefits to life in communitarian villages. One begins to notice these benefits once the unit of assessment is broadened, moving from personally earned monetary income to other less readily quantifiable factors. The Jewish people who live in Kiris Joel spend much of their time engaged in spiritually meaningful value-congruent activities expressive of their distinctive lifestyle, cultural inheritance, and theological calling. Some of these activities, the kosher butchery, for example, may produce economic benefits for the community as a whole. But not all welfare involves material resources. The devout in the community have the benefit of what our economists with their primary focus on material wealth, economically productive activities, monetary income, and things one can buy, sell, and consume, might classify as non-economic welfare-enhancing so-called leisure time, which enables the men to spend much of the day intensively engaged in the highly valued project of Torah study, while many of the women in the community undertake the equally valued leisure time project of raising Jewish families, in Kiris Joel, raising a family is not a so-called second shift. It's not a first shift either, because it's experienced as a meaningful calling rather than a well-producing job. For the devout who are prepared to embrace this particular strain of communitarianism and its worldview, there may even be welfare-enhancing value assigned to unpaid voluntary service or low-paid work at private religious schools. And the most venerable members, sorry, and the most vulnerable members of the community seem assured of some local safety net protect like protections, whether from local acts of charity, bartered exchanges, or subsidized housing. In other words, the so-called social capital of this Hasidic village make it possible to provision the basic needs of in-group members while they go about their religiously motivated business of being reproductively successful in both the biological and cultural sense. 
It may take a village to pull this off, perhaps even a culturally homogeneous village, where the residents feel bound to each other by religion, ethnicity, and common historical fate, and a, a shared ancestral origin story, and and uh, and 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 not just by happenstance or convenience or by having the income to be able to move into that area. Given the upper middle class professional world in which I live, I've more than a few close friends who are inclined to harshly judge this entire lifestyle, and that might be true of many of you. That is a predictable response given the reality of ideological factions, lifestyle diversity, and variations in metaphysical beliefs and visceral attachments in a multicultural society such as our own, but it's definitely not my intended message. Speaking as a cultural anthropologist and with due respect for the economists who might argue otherwise, lifestyles differ in part because not everyone has the same hopes and aspirations or conceptions of the good life. The lessons I draw from Kiris Joel are not moral judgments about the ideal way of life for all of humanity. Speaking as a robust cultural pluralist, I don't believe there's only one center of the good life. The lessons I draw from Curtis Joel are rather some assumption-questioning thoughts about the character and future of two particular American and, I suspect, English-British uh, national ideals, equality and diversity. I also want to say that the concept of utility, as used by economists, is too abstract and empty to really acknowledge or take account of the kinds of differences I'm talking about. The first thought is that our current income inequality measures are not a mirror of inequalities in household standard of living or general community welfare. They do not serve as well in current debates about the distribution of well-being or about how best to identify and assist those who really need it and really do lead desperate and impoverished lives or about the most effective social policies for protecting the vulnerable. That thought that the numbers don't match reality was fully anticipated by Kenneth Pruitt, former director of the United States Census Bureau, when he wrote the following, quote, it will take decades of gradual re-engineering to match census statistics to demographic realities. Pruitt had in mind problems with the way the government tries to map group diversity in the United States, counting, classifying, and keeping genealogical records on citizens using outdated, inadequate, or misleading ethnic and racial classifications. But his point holds for the way we count, measure, and portray economic inequality as well. He believed that rational social policy making in the United States depends on the intelligent use of quantitative data, yet he was aware that the number, current numbers are misleading. Numbers can be deceiving. Everyone knows this. Economists and survey researchers are well aware of the enormous methodological difficulties of accurately measuring, evaluating, and representing the overall poverty or welfare of a community. They have to make decisions all the time about what to count and what not to count, even in simply estimating household income. Should the value of those food stamps be counted as income? How about the tax credits you receive? Should the value of your monetary earnings be adjusted to take, take account of regional differences in cost of living? Economists also know that measures of household income, measures of household wealth, that is total net worth, 
and other measures of overall welfare of persons and peoples, including measures of consumption patterns, do not always tell the same story about rising or declining inequality in the United States. Method variance, which is something that psychologists knows all of, know all about, where your results are often a result, interact with the methods you use and you don't get convergence in results across different measures, are a huge problem, largely unrecognized in, if recognized in, in the economic literature, certainly not taken up in any serious way in, in the media. Okay. As Kevin Bryan and Leonardo Martinez observe in their economic quarterly essay on the evolution of income inequality in the United States, quote, the increase in income inequality observed in recent decades has not been reflected in an increase in wealth inequality. And that's what the wealth shares look like. Um, Unlike the rising inequalities in the income distribution, the inequalities in household wealth distribution did not accelerate in the 1990s, and the national distribution of total wealth has remained relatively unchanged for nearly seven decades. Although there are disputes about even that, of course. Nevertheless, it is the income distribution that has been center stage in the national conversation about inequality. The gap of dispersion in the upper quintiles of the distribution with its rising concentration of yearly income at the very high end of the distribution has become grist for the fertile imaginations of politicians, storytellers, and left and right-wing commentators. This is especially so, the contentious and provocative character of debates about this pattern, because the rising income inequalities observed today have been observed before in American history. For example, in the decades just prior to World War I. Analogies abound. The period from 1870 to 1914 was an era when diverse peoples migrated to the United States, and some of our citizens thought of America as, quote-unquote, a world federation of nations. But the melting pot was abruptly turned off shortly after the First World War. In 1924, the United States sealed its borders. For the next several decades, the United States became a more culturally homogeneous place, and incomes in the United States became more equal. In 1965, immigration policy was liberalized. Once again, we welcome the diverse peoples of the world to the United States. Is it just a coincidence that income inequalities began increasing just about the same time? Yet, that 1870 to 1914 era also resembled the 1970 to 2015 era in other ways. It, too, was a period of rapid technological change, with all that implies for those who are entrepreneurial and have the social capital, the cultural capital, the financial capital, plus the individual talent, luck, and desire to cash in. So looking at the income numbers and the history of those numbers, there are many types of stories or narratives to be told with different types of political spin. In a sense, all the current anxious attention to income inequalities per se is ironic because the annual incomes of the citizens of the United States are far more equally distributed than the distribution of their net worth or household income, including all holdings and assets. Of course, all estimates of income or wealth are the products of many debatable calculation decisions, and they vary somewhat from study to study and even author to author. Perhaps it goes without saying that dispassionate analysis is at a premium these days 
and has not been the strong suit of partisan commentators. Nevertheless, reading the literature, it appears that over the past several decades, the share of annual income taken home by the top 1% is somewhere between 10 and 20%, while the share of America's wealth owned by the top 1% is at least twice that amount. Okay. The top 3% have hold 31% of income and 54% of wealth. So my first thought is that Kiris Joel is a warning sign that something is wrong with the way we measure, portray, and debate the lived reality of economic inequality in the United States. Income-based definitions of impoverishment classify the village of Kiris Joel as the poorest in the land, Yet a broader assessment approach leads to a very different conclusion about the status of their, of their welfare and well-being. It's not a squalid village. The basic needs of its residents are taken care of, and their way of life is thick with meaning and purpose. The sooner we move to a broader assessment approach, the better, while taking account of the social and cultural capital advantages of a potent communitarian life. Um, my second thought is that while you may well be thinking with this, Kiris Joel is not an outlier or a radically atypical case. Quite the contrary, it's an ideal case for understanding a more general social process that some social scientists refer to as the equality difference paradox. The equality difference paradox refers to the trade-off between the amount of economic equality and the amount of cultural or lifestyle diversity achievable within any particular society. The basic idea is that promoting economic equality and expanding the legal and ethical scope for cultural diversity of the sort seen in Kiris Joel are not harmonious goals. Witness the fact that those countries in the world with the most egalitarian distributions of income such as Croatia, Slovenia, Denmark, and even Rwanda, are also among the most culturally homogeneous. The trade-off goes both ways. Complex, multi-ethnic, culturally heterogeneous countries, such as the United States, Brazil, India, or Israel, tend to be relatively unequal in income distributions. Perhaps this is because egalitarian redistributive norms are more likely to gain popular support in culturally uniform populations where the members of the group have a visceral sense of kinship, trust, and fellow feeling for one another. Robert Putnam has, recent, has published in recent years articles on Sook looking at the degree of social capital in various census districts related to the amount of diversity there is in those communities, and the ones with the highest social capital are the ones that are the most homogeneous. Um, Michael Jindra, the University of Notre Dame anthropologist, examines the paradox in a groundbreaking essay in the journal Current Anthropology, published uh, last June, titled The Dilemma of Equality and Diversity. Reviewing the literature on lifestyle diversity in family life, the raising of children, time management, work, and consumption, he makes the point that for many individuals and groups in a diverse society such as the United States, Maintaining one's way of life is more important than the pursuit of economic gain. He writes that the high economic achievement pattern comes at a cost, quote, so for many the sacrifices required for upward mobility are simply not thought to be worth it. 
One should not be too surprised if the parents living in Kiris Joel and in other minority communities around the country don't always aim to liberate their children from family, community, and group history, or insist that their children acquire those marketable skills or become the kind of capitalist tools that will make them upwardly and outwardly mobile in a global economy. Um, One can perhaps disparage this as the return to social science thinking of the culture of poverty concept if one also believes that the culture of mammon is the ideal cultural form that all groups should be aspiring to. But if you don't, the culture of poverty concept is not the concept that's being invoked here. Some picture of America as a liberal pluralistic society where individuals and groups can be both different and equal economically is a moral ideal for many academics. It's thus understandable that the equality difference paradox has long been a taboo topic in the social sciences. Both multiculturalists and egalitarians have preferred to keep it out of sight. Multiculturalists don't like to acknowledge that income, inequal- that income equality is most easily achieved in a society by flattening out its cultural variety. For example, by getting rid of Hasidic enclaves or Native American Indian reservations or Mexican-American border settlements. Multiculturalists fear that if the news gets out that the value of diversity is in tension with the value of economic equality, diversity will lose out and egalitarian values will be put to nefarious political use by Anglo-American ethno-nationalists for whom united we stand implies cultural uniformity. Uh, I sometimes think the French ideal is something like that. Multiculturalists worry that the goal of achieving economic equality might then be used to justify an aggressive defense of the country against immigration and an aggressive assault on ethnic and religious diversity. Egalitarians, however, also don't like to acknowledge that the greater the legal and ethical scope for lifestyle diversity in a society, the more likely the resources of that society will be unequally distributed. They find it hard to believe and nearly impossible to accept that in the United States there are individuals and groups who actually reject East and left coast upper middle class bourgeois notions of achievement and success and do so by choice spending most of their time doing something that is not wealth-producing, like studying the Torah or having babies and taking care of their children. While it may be painful to acknowledge contradictions in one's way of life, the national conversation we ought to be having is about the irreconcilability of some of our core values. It's about whether we would rather be economically equal but culturally uniform or culturally diverse but economically stratified. It's, also, it's about how best to strike a balance of values in a real world where economic equality and cultural diversity do not go hand in hand. The equality difference paradox suggests that the more we lean towards tolerance and making space for diversity, the more we will need to accept that there will be economic inequalities between cultural groups by virtue of the differences in their lifestyles, the way they raise their children, and what they think is of value. And the more we try to make all factions or cultural groups equally skilled and financially well-off in the Davos World Economic Forum sense, the more we will erode those institutions 
such as the freedom of parents to control the education of their children, that keep us diverse. And controlling marriage, of course, is another issue, too. Unfortunately, that is not the conversation we're having. In our ideologically divided society, it seems to be much easier, probably more profitable, and perhaps just more fun, or at least less unnerving, to just continue the culture wars and engage in an oracular national debate about the true meaning of numeric changes and the dispersion characteristics of a highly aggregated income distribution on the computer screen. But that is a long way from the realities of the poorest community in America or the lessons I think we should draw from Jewish, this Jewish village called Kiris Joel. Divided we stand ought to be the live and let live ideal in a genuine multicultural society. But it is highly unlikely cultural diversity will be a path leading to income or wealth equality. That type of equality and that type of diversity do not walk hand in hand. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, for a very intellectually stimulating and challenging uh, uh, talk. Now we have uh, our first commentator, who is Dr. Bradley Franks, an associate professor in the department of LSE. His domain and expertise is cognition and culture, and uh, his contribution has been to link evolutionary thinking with cultural thinking. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin by, by thanking um, Rick Schrader for a fascinating talk, and a talk which, as Alex said, was highly provocative on, on many, many levels. Um, in his introduction, um, Alex mentioned you are a cultural psychologist, a cultural anthropologist. That doesn't tell half of the story quite clearly. Um, um, I'd like to begin my comments by um, bringing in uh, an issue which is connected with some of your background thinking. Um, I know you have another strand of your thinking which is concerned with evolutionary understandings of the mind and culture and so forth. And... What struck me about your appeal to this case of Curious Joel is that it seems like a, a counterexample to a lot of recent thinking in evolutionary psychology um, in the following way. Um, there's been some very powerful and persuasive um, debate and evidence about what's called life history theory and the notion there that, um, which builds upon old-fashioned psychological ideas from Maslow and so forth, um, that at certain points in the life cycle, one requires a certain degree of um, resource capture, um, income, if you, if you like. And where there is a relatively low level of resource capture, that means it's harder for people to engage in non-resource capture activities. So if you don't have your basic needs, economic needs satisfied, you end up um, being unable to engage in communitarian activities, religious activities, and so on, you end up pursuing what's been called a fast life strategy, um, where um, issues of ultimate meaning and um, community belonging go out of the window. What matters is your next meal, in essence. And Curious Joel looks like a counterexample to that, a very strong one, where income is low, but nonetheless... Uh, there's a massive amount of coherence around spiritual uh, resources, spiritual beliefs, and so forth. So I just want to put that on the table and see what you think about that. And 
perhaps also then to th- see if that issue could be generalized, because in evolutionary thinking, we tend to get rather hung up on the idea that everything comes back to resources. Everything comes back to resources which will allow us to, will allow us to provision our offspring and, and therefore reproduce and so forth. So, for example, religious beliefs have been explained in this way. Um, group um, cohesion has been, been explained in this way. And yet again, we have this, this paradox in, in terms of Curias Joel that um, these things are being achieved, reproductive fitness is being achieved, in the absence of the factors which are supposed to be supported by um, community cohesion and so forth. So it's a, an interesting paradox, I think, for evolutionary reasons as well as for the, the reason you raised. Um, so I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that, if I could, in, in a while. Um, the second comment I'd like to make is that, in a sense, your account of, or your defense of what you call um, robust cultural pluralism, depends upon a pluralism which is, as it, as it were, a form of separatism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the example you chose of Curias Joel is of a closed community, by and large. A community which says, these are our borders, um, you come inside our borders, you play by our rules, um, we don't come outside of our borders very much, we don't want to change what the world outside of us looks like. Okay, so, in a sense, there are parallel communities going on here, parallel sets of beliefs, parallel cultures. But in many ways, the most pressing issue that for, for cultural pluralism is, is when cultures collide. When one culture says, no, I want you to be different. Um, or one culture says, I'd like this other group to share my beliefs. Where the conditions that, you, that hold for Curious Joel, in fact, do not hold. Um, and I think if one looks at these different possibilities for multiculturalism, for pluralism, or whatever you want to call it... Um, we end up with somewhat different pictures of potentials for cultural engagement and intercultural engagement. If Curious Joel was a, a paradigm example, the best example of this kind of case, we might end up with a picture of intercultural engagement, which was very much a Habermasian, um, very um, um, sort of egalitarian approach to intercultural exchange where people can, are able to put aside their differences because there's no basic attempt to, to conquer the other side, if you will. There's no conflict at the, at the heart of it. But if you think about other cases of, of cultural engagement and intercultural engagement, then conflict is at the heart of it. And there we have um, the conflict over what Scott Atron calls sacred values, where they just do not... Um, have any scope for being um, combined, for, integra- for integration, for being, for being resolved. Um, and so my, my wonder or my worry is that you picked on one particular example which will support your case, and other examples might not do that. Okay. Thank you. Um, Given that time is moving on, we're going to go straight to Anne, and then you can pick up on some issues at the end. So uh, next commentator is Professor Anne Phillips. She's the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science at LSE. She's in the Department of Government and was previously Director of the Gender Institute. She's a leading academic in the field of feminist political theory. Okay, well, um, I mean, I I also very much appreciated the the clarity of your lecture and the importance of the issues that you raise, but uh, I very much also disagree with the substance of your argument. Um, I mean, it's not 
It's not that I disagree with the central claim about people having different hopes and aspirations and conceptions of the good. Or the, uh, thankfully, in my view, many people who repudiate the sort of the aspiration to mainstream upper middle class conceptions of career success. I mean, both my own children, to give a personal <laughs> note, um, repudiate this aspiration and you know regard their parents with their deluded parents with a sort of mixture of scorn and pity. Um, and though I you know sometimes uh, despair at their lack of foresight, I, I, I admire their resistance to the siren calls of modern day consumerism. But I mean, to come a bit closer to the uh, the issues that you address, I also recognise that those differences in hopes and aspirations don't just reflect us as different individuals. Um, they also reflect the, the kinds of communities in which our aspirations and hopes were formed. And, and, and again, I, I also recognise that assuming that, our own, that the hopes and aspirations typical of one's own community are what, in the end, everyone will converge on is, is deeply problematic. Uh, in my view, it may not be empirically wrong that there will be that convergence, but I think the I think the processes that would bring about that convergence aren't our kind of concerns with economic inequality. Uh, it's much more just processes of global capitalism um, that drive those uh, forces towards convergence. Um, in my view, inequality remains one of the biggest obstacles to people being able to pursue their own choices about life. Uh, because even to repudiate a range of life paths and choices, you have to be in a position to access them, and you may not need a very large level of resources in order to access them, but you do need, um, you do need some. And I think while uh, sharply rising inequalities in income and wealth, in the UK the figures indicate wealth as well, um, could in principle exist with everyone having an adequate... Um, sufficient minimum to live self-affirming lives. In practice, it often doesn't. So, so I mean, the, the first thing is that, I mean, I'm troubled by the suggestion that our anxieties about inequalities in income and wealth might in some way be beside the point or, or might even be pushing us in the wrong direction, which to some extent your, your argument seems to suggest. Um, because while, I mean, certainly the good life cannot be adequately captured by um, listing uh, the material resources, the money that we have access to. I mean, I, I agree with that, and I think uh, most contemporary egalitarians who, who work on, uh, certainly in the political theory tradition, agree on that. But not having access to material resources does matter a great deal. So that's my first point. But then I think engaging more directly with the challenge of a robust uh, cultural pluralism I'm, I'm troubled by the shorthand of cultural group. Um, now, my worries here are partly the uh, predictable feminist ones um, about the, the ways in which particular inv invocations of culture can work to constrain those in the cultural group who have different aspirations and more specifically can work to constrain alternatives for women. Cultural groups are never homogeneous, uh, and their membership will range across devotees of the established order um, and critics of it. Um, and the critics are, of course, sometimes out-and-out -out dissidents. It doesn't sound as though there were many of those in, in the village, um, and the out-and-out -out dissidents typically leave. 
But I think they will also include the women who remain very committed to their community, very committed to their role as mothers, uh, very happy about their dress codes, but would like to read the Torah as well. And I bet you there are a few of those in the village. Um, When we talk about the preferences and aspirations of a cultural group, their choices about their lifestyle, I think we need to keep those differences very firmly in mind. I mean, just, just to make a parallel here, in the... In the general literature on income inequality, there's still a tendency to think that, that women's lower incomes and lesser wealth can be in good part explained by the different choices that they make about their lives and the different preferences that they have. So that the idea that women attach more value than men do to raising their children or caring for elderly relatives, hence are less likely to remain in full-time employment, less likely to advance up the career ladder, uh, and of course end up with lower pay and lower levels of wealth. Well, to me, that, self, that kind, of, kind of analysis self-evidently fails to register the social forces operating on both men and women you know, that generate and sustain that particular gendered division of labour. I'm I'm similarly sceptical, though I'm not entirely disbelieving, about the suggestion that the differential aspirations and preferences of ethnocultural groups can be taken as a significant explanation of their position on the income scale. There are certainly cases where one can make that argument, but it seems to me, uh, if one were to try and generalise that, again, it self-evidently ignores what are very kind of powerful social forces that are generating and sustaining those group inequalities. So, I mean, I accept the general challenge that you've made to us in, in tonight's lecture, which is that... Um, that people have radically different conceptions of a good life, uh, that a significant component in those differences is cultural, um, and that measuring satisfaction with our lives exclusively in money terms really doesn't, doesn't capture um, you know, what makes a life go well. But I don't, I don't, see, the, I don't see the promotion of greater economic e- equality, and I might just stress here, I think there's no self-professed egalitarian these days who actually envisages total equality. It's, it's kind of greater economic equality that, that everyone's talking about. I, I don't see the promotion of greater economic equality as what threatens cultural diversity. If anything, what's creating that convergence are the forces of global capitalism, which are, in fact, uh, increasingly um, Imposing that kind of common aspiration, uh, which which kind of cuts across all kinds of diversities. Okay, thank you both for uh, some very substantive comments. Uh, Not, I don't think we'll be able to address them. Maybe you could pick up one or two and leave maybe a time for a question. (laughs) So that's an impossible task, but. So we have uh, 12 minutes before we're going to be thrown out of this room. <laughs> essentially. Um, I have um, a former brother-in-law. I actually have many former brother-in-laws. I'm looking for a new kinship term for former brother-in-laws. Um, uh, who was doing a residency in dermatology, and he said to me, you know, Rick, there are only two things you need to know to do dermatology. If it's dry, make it wet. If it's wet, make it dry. And I told that to an anthropological friend of mine who said, you know, there are only two things you need to do anthropology. 
If someone asserts it, deny it. If someone denies it, assert it. So I appreciate the, um, <laughs> and I actually give a seminar with that title. So I'm, I very much appreciate uh, these kinds of assertions and denials. In fact, I think there's a fair amount of agreement um, if we had enough time to go into it. And the points that, are ra- that were raised were both substantive and done in a terrific spirit of promoting further conversation. I, I very much appreciate the comments. Um, and there are so many. You know where to start. Um, you know, I guess I don't experience a sense of regret over the fact that you're probably not going to see an Amish ballet dancer, okay? Um, and that um, the Amish community has a set of values that favor manual labor over intellectual labor of the type we do. Um, have a certain conception of um, male and female roles. Uh, take their kids out of schools so that they're not exposed um, to the kinds of things that would lead to this convergence that was being talked about, um, and tend to live in some of the poorest counties um, in the United States. But from the point of view of resource capture um, or a sufficient minimum, I think we're all in agreement. I mean, we want there to be a sufficient minimum in resources. My point is that the economic focus and the measurements that are being used just don't take into account cultural and social capital of the type that does provide uh, sufficient resources, at least minimal resources, in many cases. And we tend to imagine a world in which these measures are telling us about wretchedness and impoverished lives. Much of the story about income equality is the fact that there are some incredibly rich people at the top who are differentiating themselves from the top 1%, because they're the top 1% of the 1%, and that is pushing a lot of it, which is very different from asking how many wretched people are there living impoverished lives in the United States. And, and I think most people agree that there's less poverty today than there was 40 years ago in the United States. And here the disagreements turn over, whether it's 5% or 15%, and there's enormous variation there. So... Everything has been summarized into a kind of picture that leads for enormous amount of ideologically motivated interpretation. Um, I also want to say that um, the Ottoman Empire has emerged for at least some political theorists as um, an ideal um, in the multicultural world. And there are some people who actually think you look at 19th century Ottoman Empire, they managed to have 23 different languages spoken in the Ottoman Empire. It is the case that the center was very weak. They didn't tell any local millet or local ethnic group what kind of marriage patterns they should have, what their gender relations should be, what their religion should be. Um, Exit, of course, is important, and I agree with you totally that within any cultural community, there's suppression of alternatives, and there are going to be people who would prefer the suppressed alternative and may agitate for transformation and want voice to be able to do that, and having voice is important. And exit is obviously an important thing. And there's always Cairo, Damascus, and Baghdad where people can leave their thick ethnicities and be in a cosmopolitan environment where Habermasian conversations can go on and certain kinds of creative things happen. But they are 
leaving their communities, essentially. I mean, the hybridity you're talking about doesn't really carry forward a way of life or a tradition. Um, so, yes, I do think it, we may discover... Levi strauss the famous anth- French anthropologist, made an incredibly provocative comment that disturbed a lot of people at the U.N., when 20 years after he had given an initial speech they loved, they brought him back to talk about racism. And he got up and made the following comment. The best we can hope to do in the battle against racism is relative equality of resources and sufficient physical distance from each other. Um, And that led to, of course, you can imagine the response. But um, there is something to be said for... Sufferance. I know I once talked to Clifford Gertz years ago about celebrating diversity, and he said to me something like, the most I hope for is sufferance. That is, that is not engaging the sacred values are not talking to each other. They're not interested in that. They're interested in preserving their way of life and thickening a discourse that goes on within a tradition. And they need the ability to do that without other groups who think they should universalize their way of life using their power to intervene, and that may well be what's happening on a global scale. There's a huge debate there, of course, about whether convergence will take place. The Washington consensus after the wall came down was the West is best and is going to take over the world. I don't, you know, there's still people who talk that way and believe that way, but that consensus is not a consensus anymore. Even Samuel Huntington, you know, um, basically argued there was not going to be a convergence. There were going to be these major civilizational blocks And he was essentially a global multiculturalist. Of course, along with Huntington's position was a ethno-national domestic position, which is, you have your civilization. I'm happy you have China. I'm happy you have India. Let me have my Anglo-Saxon culture. And that led to an anti-immigration kind of position. So it was global multiculturalism um, with domestic monoculturalism. Um, but he certainly felt that the West was unique, not universal, and did not believe in the kind of proselytizing, universalizing um, that many foreign policies try to promote today. There's much more to be said, but let me open it up. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we do have a couple of minutes for, for questions. So, uh, right, a couple of hands up already. So please be brief. Say who you are and a very brief question. I'll say that again. Very brief. Uh, first, at the front, yeah. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, uh, is the uh, church not the ultimate capitalist in your... Mo- I can't quite hear you. Uh, the church is a, the ultimate capitalist in our society, and they, uh, they sell a culture based upon the God they made up. And this same church has inflicted austerity on this village you've been talking about, and they have walked away very rich. Mike, working, it's very hard for me to yeah. hear. They have walked away very rich and powerful from this austerity they've put on a vi- the village that you've been talking about. And do you not think that looks like a, a fascist model of a way of life and a culture where there is no human rights, freedoms of expression, and a personal culture that can be grown from? any individual in your community. Thank you. So for for people who didn't hear that, that's whether the church in the community you were looking at, whether that was oppressive and uh, basically making a lot of money off the people. Will we do one more question? There was one there and then there. So three. I'm going to do three. Yeah. 
Right. Thank you for your talk. It seemed, correct me if I'm... Who you are again, just say... Hi, I'm David. Um, Thank you for your talk. And uh, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the income in Curious Joel was quite evenly distributed. If, for instance, the rabbi or the chicken seller became richer than the others, do you think it would affect the happiness and contentment of Curious Joel? And if so, would you not concede that income equality is still relevant, albeit within a smaller sphere. Okay, and then one more, and I'm going to try it again. Say who you are in certain sense, in a larger sense. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm Jane Cooper. I'm a student in the department here. There's so much that I I would love to say on that. It was really thought-provoking, the responses as well. But to keep it short... Given that there are so many difficulties with any quantitative measure that intends to capture human life, do you think we'd see a slightly different picture if we looked at health inequalities rather than income inequalities, and that might move us a little way away from this wretched notion that everything is about price? Okay, so the question there was about health inequalities as opposed to income inequalities. Richard, do you want to Um, just maybe answer one aspect or...? Yeah, I mean, these are all deep questions, of course. The, um, I, I do think that um, communities that have a kind of theocratic basis definitely are communities in which there's a great deal of sen- sensitivity to deviation. And that's, I wouldn't call them fascistic, although, because, of course, fascistic is a term that says something's terrible and bad, but I, I've always wondered exactly what... It means to be fascistic. I don't think this is based on either a notion of racial domination or racial identity. It's, it certainly is based on some notion of there being an objective moral charter that is biblical and which human beings have a responsibility to uphold. Um, and, and I think everyone who is moral basically believes there's some kind of objective moral charter, and those moral charters tend to vary in how specific they are about um, how you should behave. So, for example, you know, thou shall not bow down before craven images is a very specific command, and if it's divinely authored, it puts some restrictions on you, which is somewhat different than saying it's good to be fair and just, which you may think is also part of the objective moral charter, but may lend itself to greater interpretation and is less specific in controlling behavior. So I do think the degree to which um, there's a kind of very specific control of behavior varies by community. And Kiris Joel, I think, probably does, I know it does, have some people who leave the community. There's very interesting research to be done there on what happens to this next generation, these young people. What do they have access to with regard to information? Is that going to erode their commitment to the community or isn't it? Um, with regard to income distributions, I think it's totally unknown what the ideal distribution of income is to make a community happy. Um, what is it? I mean, are we, uh, it, the, the top 10 percent should have how much? You know, we had the Eastern European countries and the communist countries got lots and lots closer to income, inequal- income equality. Perhaps the top 10 percent had 15 or 17 percent of the wealth during before the wall came down, um, you know, you go to Bolivia, you might find the top 10 percent had 70 percent of the income. The United States, you know, was where I described it. But 
Do we know how that relates to happiness within a community? I don't think so. I think that's something that economists can't really tell you what the ideal distribution is and for what, ideal for what. So that's an open question and one that, again, I think is researchable and ought to be researched. Um, Health inequalities um, are very mysterious. I mean, I wrote... I wrote a New York Times essay on health inequality some years ago, and I reviewed the literature pretty widely. And I was amazed to discover that health inequalities emerge even when access to health care isn't irrelevant. I mean, you know, that there is no known way in which doctors could deal with that, yet you get health inequalities. Every major theory that's proposed out there for why there are health inequalities ends up being defeatable by some set of evidence. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we know enough about the causes of health inequality right now to simply put it into economics. The United States spends a lot of money on health, okay, and it doesn't mean the United States has produced a healthier population than populations that spend less. Um, you know, Greek, as I remember, you know, Greek males, Greek, Greek adults who lived past 10 looked a lot healthier than um, people growing up in England. Uh, where there was much more investment in, in health. And if you look at the health in the, the Whitehall studies, you find health inequalities emerging even among people who are white-collar in Whitehall. I mean, you know, people who are on the secretarial staff in Whitehall and who have health insurance and certainly adequate incomes look less healthy than people who are, you know, in level one or two. And it's, so it's not just poverty that you, in fact, you get a distribution with regard to heart conditions that's just as great among white-collar, white-hole employees by status level that you do across the entire population. So it's a, that, too, is a mystery. That's anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There, oh, perfect to time. Um, so let me just uh, first thank the audience for coming out in miserable weather. Uh, hope you've all got your umbrellas to get home. And let me thank the commentators for the incisive comments and substantive input into the dialogue. But most of all, let me thank Professor Rick Schwader for a very stimulating discussion, which we will continue now. Thank you.